This week, I'd like to introduce the Misfit Universe to walking meditation. I began teaching walking meditation during the pandemic as a way of helping to calm my young adult clients who were becoming more and more anxious and irritated by not being able to travel or go many places early on in the pandemic. Walking meditation can assist with reducing anxiety, increasing focus, lowering stress, and more. Now, some would suggest finding a smaller area and walking around that specific space. While that's okay, one of the benefits of walking meditation is it helps you to focus by needing to be aware of where you're going at all times. So I'd like to suggest walking around your neighborhood or a park that you're familiar with. If you are in a park or a woods that's quiet, allow yourself to take in the sounds around you. During walking meditation, your eyes are open the entire time. So this is another opportunity to tap into your imagination. For this particular exercise, I'll ask that you imagine yourself in a quiet forest next to a stream. Allow your thoughts to slow down, your breath to slow down, your heartbeat to slow down. Find a sense of calm here. Continue to walk down the stream and pay attention to your breathing. Let's take a few rounds of breath together. Inhale deep for me. And exhale. Okay, two more rounds, and remember to create this place inside your mind while also calmly being aware of the real world around you. And we inhale again. One last time. Okay, I'd like for you to stand still now. Close your eyes. Slowly allow the sound of the stream to disappear. Now sit with your journey for a moment before opening your eyes again. This is just a taste of what walking meditation can look like. In future episodes, we'll go a little deeper. I hope this helps, Misfits. Now, let's get to the show. And let's get healed. Revolution Multimedia LLC presents The Healing Space, a black and queer mental health podcast created to prove there is more than one way to heal. I am your host, Sensei Raven Akundayo, CLC. So, let's start this off by checking in. First, 
Thank you for coming back for another important episode, Misfit Universe. Also, thanks for the feedback on healing through both imposter syndrome and sexual trauma. Deciding to come back this month wasn't easy for me, but these episodes have reignited my passion for the healing space, and I'm thankful to all of you that have found each of them as necessary as I have. Now, that's not to say that December will be four episodes. <laughs> that's a no to that. But I don't foresee myself going all of December without at least one episode. But back to this week's show. I'm happy to have my dear friend Araya Baker joining me as we discuss healing through religious trauma. Now, Araya is a counselor, educator, suicidologist, and policy analyst. Baker is a vocal advocate in the movement to ban conversion therapy and has forged an innovative body of work on political and religious fundamentalism, despite difficult experiences with spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Araya currently serves on the advisory board of Pride in the Pews, a grassroots nationwide campaign aimed at celebrating stories of resilient queer faith in the black church. PITP publishes the first ever directory of LGBTQ affirming black churches. Formerly Baker worked with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the Trevor Project, the US's only 24-7 crisis and suicide prevention helpline specifically for LGBTQ youth. Beyond professional roles, Araya engages deeply in local Southern politics and rural rural community organizing, as well as archival and genealogical activism. He traces part of his heritage to Wessington Plantation, which still stands. Misfits, let's just go ahead and get right into it. Here's my conversation with Araya Baker. Enjoy. Okay, Misfit Universe, we are back, you know, and I talked to you all earlier about this extremely important conversation, and I am honored to have my dear friend Araya Baker here with me to kind of uh, break down everything concerning religious trauma. So Araya, thank you so much for joining us in the Misfit Universe. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely, absolutely. So first, I wanted to check in with you, as we do here on The Healing Space, and just ask, how are you doing right now? I'm in a good place. I'm in a good place. Um, I have been taking care of myself really well lately. And so I'm feeling very grounded and very restored. Despite so many things that are going on, so much chaos in the world, I've managed to find a way to like center myself. So yeah, I think I'm making progress in my own healing journey. Good. What are some of your own personal day-to-day -day healing practices? Yeah, um, so I just got back in therapy and I found, I just lucked out and found an amazing therapist who specializes in trauma and does a lot of somatic work. Yeah. And so that is a totally different like therapy language than I was trained in. Mm. We're not doing any like cognitive behavioral stuff, no like um, talk therapy. It's more so like literally processing where trauma stored in the body yeah, and so yeah. um yeah my therapist has been coaching me on a lot of different visualization techniques just like imagining myself in the last session we like imagined a stream and I was like envisioning myself as the stream 
and then we envision like a boulder and that sort of symbolized like obstacles and moving around them and flowing it's just like i was like yeah 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 (laughs) okay like i feel very like calm right now like this really brought me back down to baseline so i've been getting into meditation breath work visualization yoga things like that so all of the things that i love to teach yes (laughs) exactly exactly So it's so funny that you would mention about your therapist doing visualization with you because that's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, But more importantly, you spoke of the stream. So a lot of the visualization work that I do with my clients are I usually take them to the beach and we do a lot of work Mm -hmm. there with having conversations with their younger selves and things of that nature. I just started doing the stream last week. So that's why it's like mind blowing that you just said that. I did a stream for the first time last week. And that's wow. and so when you said that you imagined yourself as the stream, I was like, wow. Because I had them sitting next to the stream. I had them putting their fingers in it, just being connected, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Didn't even dawn on me to have them as the stream. So my mind, because I always tell my clients, I'm like, you can keep it to yourself. If you never want to share with me what your experience was, you don't have to, yeah. you know. Yeah. But there's a part of me that's wondering if any of them took it the way that you did and made themselves the stream. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That works important. So I'm glad that you're I'm glad that you're back with it. That's beautiful. It's transformative. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And and I another thing I love about that is that it, it continues to drive home the importance of healers need healing too, you know. Yes, like yeah. I'm very open about that and I speak very candidly about that being integral to my own professional health and um contribution like i'm not gonna show up well in session with any client if i'm not well so you know that's facts that's facts (laughs) okay so some of these questions that i have for you are rather lengthy so forgive me if i have to read When I was going over them, I was like, oh, wow. So these aren't, how are you today? I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not chit chat. No, 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 no. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's dive right in. Okay. So Ready? you, like I, were aware of your queerness from a very young age. How old were you when you were made to feel as though it was sinful? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting question for me. Um, I guess to start, I became aware of my own queerness internally, probably around like four. Mm -hmm. So before I even had any language about queerness, any exposure to queer mentors, um, you know, queer ancestors, James Baldwin, decades before that, I just felt an innate sense of of, um, just, an innovative way of looking at the world, of seeing possibility that people didn't um, didn't really register and didn't really push me to imagine. And so I'm thinking as a young boy, like, wow, I'm seeing so much more beyond this role, this narrow, tiny, masculine role that folks are training me up to see and be. And it feels different and it feels special. And um, yeah, I guess I never really was thrust into it through bullying or anything like that. It was more so my own awakening as a kid. Um, And then 
I grew up in a family, an immediate family, with parents who like read a lot and who were compared to the norm, like probably more open-minded than most. I'm also yeah. an only child. So like they're used to me being very quirky and very like weird. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff in my family, they're like, oh, that's just him. That's just him. No. <laughs> so they weren't really surprised. I think that actually helped me. Yeah. And also like a learning culture in my home where we were just like, I was just like encouraged to always explore and think outside of the box and um, reflect critically. So all that to say, it wasn't until later in life actually that I encountered persistent sort of, I guess, indoctrination or like mm -hmm. attempts to make me feel ashamed of my sexuality. But yeah. that's not really part of my like early coming of age story. Um, it wasn't until I sort of got like a public voice and started doing more visible community work and centered queerness in that. Um, a lot of my mental health work involves suicide prevention for queer youth. And so once I started speaking up about that and, you know, posting about it on social media and, and like writing articles featured in things, I think a lot of relatives start to realize like, oh, so not only queer but like he's out here like advocating for this community and yeah. this is interesting we thought that he would just like be more low-key and conform and be under the radar but it's like no 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 yes <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> first of all i have to be true to me Amen. and leaning into my authenticity is a part of my own survival a part of my yeah. own wellness a part of being whole and feeling spiritually like nourished, Absolutely. just acknowledging every dimension of me. So it's a part, it's it's important for me personally, but also I've been placed in all of these privileged institutions and environments from college to grad school to different jobs. So how could I not use the access that I've been granted to try to lift as I climb, to try to bring someone else along? you know, what What use would it be to go and get all the degrees that I have if I'm just going to sit up and like try to be rich for me <laughs> mm -hmm. and just say, oh, the rest of the queer folks hate crimes, you know, homelessness, employment discrimination. I'm not affected. Right. I care. Right. Like, good luck so to you. Think, right. Yeah. Like, I'm good. So I think that honestly is like the the crux of my queerness. And I think, um, I don't know if you know, Alok, I don't know if I'm saying their name right, Alok Vaid Minon, a poet and speaker, but they were speaking recently about how for them, queerness is really transcending this us versus them binary. And um, so that is what it means for me too. Like there is no them, there is no, yeah us it is just all of us as human beings you know being inter interdependent and surviving uh with the help of one another and so yeah when i came up against spiritual abuse and religious trauma because of that i was like oh wow this is a group of people who just like is really concerned about their own identity their own sort of holier than thou 
spiritual anointedness and they don't really care about anybody and yeah, that was just yeah. so vastly different from the way that I see the world it was like jarring I wasn't really traumatized at first I was honestly more curious like where along the way did we diverge especially being the same family me being like so embracing of like all of humanity and then people who've seen me grow up my entire life being so exclusionary yeah um and so i was like fascinated like what is going on <laughs> and why did y'all hide this part of me part of of y'all from me all for me years? right right <sighs> so yeah so i'm i'm tripping right now because i've known you for several years uh but we've never yeah. had like now we, we've had like maybe one or two conversations but never mm -hmm. anything like really in depth as far as both of our backgrounds. So yeah. I'm listening to you right now and I'm like, dude, like we, <laughs> I'm listening to your journey and I'm just like, good Lord, everything he just said was me. Like I'm not an only child, but my, uh, my oldest sister and I, we grew up together and she's a decade older than me. So I felt like an only child, you know? Um, so that's yeah. probably, from everything you just said, the only thing that we don't have in common. Uh, it was four yeah. years old for me. That was when I realized, yeah. wow. you know. And I appreciate when we can have these kind of conversations, especially when both of us can say four years old. Because oftentimes, people try to push on us that the only way, and this is by no means taking away from the journeys of those who have been, um, yeah. who have been molested. But mm -hmm. there are those of us who don't have to go through that particular trauma from a young age to know who we are, you know? So I think yeah. it's important to have these kind of conversations for those who are listening to understand that when we say this is who we are, it's not something we're just making up, you know? And a, a, a really quick aside, I always find it really interesting when cishet people say that we're just making that up. And I mm -hmm. believe, meaning them, I believe there's no way that you can be born that way. I found that mm -hmm. to be so interesting because mm -hmm. how can you tell someone from a different community <laughs> what and how they are who they are? Like, how does that even make sense to you? That yeah. you're not a part of the community, no. you never had the experience, but yet you're able to tell us who we are. That's interesting. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There are also so many pictures of me as a kid, like very young, probably like younger than five, where I'm just like being so free and just like so just like gender expansive and like don't even care who's watching, posing, you know, and I'm like, it's so evident. And there's no way that people in my family were not clocking it and being like, he probably gonna be gay. <laughs> like, so don't don't act brand new now. Now, don't come around now. Like, like y'all never suspected. I think the thing that probably threw my family off was that until the eleventh grade, I had boyfriends and girlfriends. Gotcha. So I, I think that the fact that there were girls in my life probably threw them off. Like, I had girlfriends from a very young age. So Got it's you. not that I don't, I think my mother always knew, but I think mm -hmm. the rest of my family just thought that I was different because, you know, mm -hmm. my mother allowed me to just live a life, you know, to be completely free to be myself when it came to my toys, mm -hmm. everything. There was never any question, mm -hmm. you know, I was allowed to just be me. So, mm -hmm. you know, I guess from my family, it was like, well, this is, 
peculiar because we see him with girls, but you know, like in elementary school, had two girlfriends at one point, but I come home and I play with my dolls, you know? It's like, I've got my Barbies, I have my gym, you know, it's like, I have all of this stuff. So, and you know, I look at pictures of me as well, like you said, when you were younger, got my hands on my hips and all that stuff and was never told I shouldn't do it. I was just me, you know? Yeah. My dad never tried to change anything. He wasn't one of those dads where it's like, let's go out and play football and all that stuff. Yeah. I was who yeah. I was, you know? Exactly, yeah. So I, I feel like it's important. Yes. I, I, I love that you shared that because I think that both stories need to be told. As queer people, we are well aware of the stories of the childhood where we were beaten and shamed for who we were from start to where we are now. And those stories are important because it plays a big part in the journey of queerness. But I think it's also important, you know, because we always talk about visibility and how important visibility visibility is. I think it's important for our stories to be told too, because it is important for some youth to know that your family will be accepting in the beginning, even if as you get older and as you become more vocal in your truth, (laughs) you may see something that looks a little different than what was there in exactly. the beginning. <laughs> exactly. I 100% agree. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, so of course, you know, you uh, you provided me, as well as some research I did myself, you provided me with <laughs> some things to read over as far as some pieces, all brilliant, by the way. So in this particular piece from The Mighty, you mentioned that you filed three police reports for hate crimes. You even stated that you were called an abomination and spit at during one of these crimes. So my question for you is what impact have experiences like that had on you mentally and emotionally? Yeah, all of those experiences happened in Philly, a city that I actually really love, but is also a very hyper-religious city. It's probably Mm -hmm. one of the most religious cities on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very Black city too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it was just interesting entering that space, being a Southerner, and I associate religiosity with the South, and I'm like, oh wait, it's here too. And um, yeah, like those experiences definitely shook me to my core. I was like, frightened to death in two of those experiences. One happened immediately after, oh, I think that was during the last part of the Obama administration, the Supreme Court had legalized gay marriage or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm like walking through Dilworth Park, which is City Hall in Philly. And there's like these four men behind me and City Hall echoes. So everything they say is like you, everybody can hear everything. Yeah. So they're like, man, the world is so effed up. Boys want to be girls, girls want to be boys, yada, yada, yada. And they're following me. So I'm in this park and I'm like trying not to react because I'm like, I'm alone and I'm small. So let me play it cool. And they just don't stop. And so finally I turn around and I'm like, if you wanted to say that to me, you could have just tapped me on the back and said it to my face. So like, now I'm getting like confrontational. <laughs> so we end up going back and forth. And the biggest takeaway from that experience is that once we 
left this sort of tunnel and were like in the park park. Um, there were people all around. There were bystanders. Yeah. There were people eating, playing in the fountain. There was a guard literally within like four or five feet of us who could hear everything. Yeah. And no one did anything. People were looking up from their phones. They heard them literally like yelling at me, um, saying all types of stuff and just look right back down. And I think that is what shook me up mentally and emotionally and spiritually. I'm just like, why do we live in a world in a society where people are so apathetic about other people's well-being and mm -hmm. other people's inclusion and other people's dignity? And so, yeah, um, after that experience, I had an interesting conversation with one of my professors and he's like 6'4 and um, like super buff. And he's like, honestly, I've never had experiences like that. He's like, I really feel for you, but like, I just, I guess I don't get read in the same way that you get read as yeah. someone who's shorter and more petite. And so I also had an awakening in that moment where I was like, oh, so like, this is not all about homophobia and sexuality. It's also a lot of stuff about like gender expression and patriarchy and people especially men sort of like being repulsed by any sign of femininity in men yeah. and how bodies are sort of gendered as masculine or feminine and yeah so after that I was like okay so this means I navigate the world a little bit differently and um yeah since then I am sort of more aware of my surroundings and just aware of the fact that some people might see me as a target. And um, it took a little bit of emotional, um, it took a little bit of emotional work for me to get through the like disillusionment that I felt because I was just like, I'm already a target for being black. And now I'm a target because someone could perceive me as queer and I'm in Philly and it's happening with folks that I perceive myself as being in solidarity with. Like we're right. from the same community. Like I'm in black schools, like advocating for black children, black parents, black educators. Um, and you know, my whole career is dedicated to uplifting black people, but like there's just yeah. not that solidarity oftentimes between queer black folks and cis het black folks particularly cishet Black men. And so that's something that I've had to work through a lot. And I think it has required me to just like humanize Black people and remember all of the things that we've been through and that we survived. And just remember the historical context, the cultural context, the way we're socialized and how it's not necessarily our fault that we have internalized these things. We're responsible for unlearning and mm -hmm. figuring out a way to really acknowledge each other's humanity, but I can't dispose of a black man who is homophobic um, because we have, we live in a society with so many other systems that are ready to dispose of us both. Yeah, And yeah, so yeah. it's a lot of compassion too. That is, sure, and I almost feel like I need to invite you back on just for that conversation alone. <laughs> that, 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 that's an important conversation to have, you know, about how, yeah we are asked 
to make a choice, you know, between what it is that we're going to put first. But we are constantly, without question, showing up for our brothers and sisters who consider themselves to be cishet and are standing on the front line of blackness, you know? Um, so I think that's yeah. a, a very, very important conversation to have. Um, I would say that your skin is blue. And when I say that your skin is blue, I call it the X-Men effect. And mm. I see us as X-Men in this community and mm. we all show up differently. Uh, a Jean Grey, a Storm can walk out into the world and no mm. one would clock them, you know? Yeah. And so that's me. When I go out into the community, I've never had that experience. I've never had anyone step to me in that way. When I was younger, yes, but it was because they didn't like how, how nice I was. I didn't feel a need to, you know, buck against or try to fight anybody. But like I said, I always had the girlfriend. So I was picked yeah. on because they didn't like that I had the girl but didn't have to act like them. So I was bullied, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. I was bullied because... I had the girlfriend, but yet I was on the safety patrol, you know, <laughs> like all of these things that should yeah. have people not wanting to deal with me, you know, all of the things that mm -hmm. should make a girl not want to have anything to do with me, but yet I still had them. But as far mm -hmm. as my queerness, that was never a thing, you know, but then mm -hmm. I have my friends and I, I look back and of course, you know, in hindsight, you say that you would handle things differently, but I had my friends that wore more like Nightcrawler or more like Mystique, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and there wasn't a way for them to be able to quote unquote hide who they were. It was just out in the open and they were ridiculed and yeah. picked on. And when I mentioned hindsight, I didn't do anything. I were the people, I was the people in the park looking up from my phone you know mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so this was me in middle school and i'll never forget you know of course i won't share their names but i'll never forget my friends that were openly queer and this is just who they were and with me unless i had a conversation with you you wouldn't know but i didn't defend them and so mm. i think about those people in the park with you in philly and i'm like i wonder if any of those people to this day i wonder if they're saying to themselves i should have said something and if it changed mm. who they were you know, because we, we can look at the story like these people didn't do anything. But if we go a little deeper, it's like, OK, but what did they do after the fact? Did they continue to yeah. just forget that, you know, this this young black boy in the park even existed? Or after that whole situation, did they say to themselves, I didn't do shit. What am I going to do now? You know, and yep. when they were presented with the situation again, did they still stay quiet or did they finally speak up? Yeah, yeah. I will never know. I mean, I hope yeah. that it led to some awakening, but yeah, yeah, you never know. It definitely like took a toll on me though. The next day, I went. I remember going to um, an Independence Day concert, and the fireworks were making me jump. <laughs> like I was so startled, and I actually hadn't shared the experience with any of my friends yet because it was just like so bizarre and random and. Yeah. I was just like, I don't think that any of them would be able to relate being um, straight. And I didn't want to like feel their pity. I just wanted to like, I just wanted to forget, to be honest. And um, they all noticed. They're like, are you okay? Is something wrong with you? But I was like really paranoid that I would run into these four men again. 
And so I just think about that experience whenever I, I think what you said about people who can't hide is really important. There are so many nuances to being queer and not everyone within the queer community has the same experience or is read the same way and is treated the same way. And so I think even within a marginalized group, we always have to remember who is least likely to be helped, who is Absolutely. most likely to be left behind and who's more likely to be targeted. And so I try to like center those folks, like Black trans folks, for example, um, whenever I speak broadly about Black queer and trans people. I yeah. just keep that in mind, so. Absolutely. The thing with being blue is that people can oftentimes be jealous of your power, you know? Uh, they the The gene that you were born with is something that they wish they had, which is being their full selves. When you are blue and you walk outside and you don't attempt to cover yourself up, when you just revel in the skin that you're in, it makes people who are more insecure jealous. And in turn, they don't know how to operate in that jealousy. So I have to lash out and try to hurt you either verbally or physically, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, the beauty is also one of the things that contributes the most to the pain because mm. the beauty is is that your blueness is a blessing but it mm -hmm. also is painful when you decide to not hide your blueness you know mm -hmm. and that's the thing that I, I feel like a lot of our cishet family doesn't really get is that we are black so we get the journey you know but you don't really have a lot of empathy for the fact that we have another thing that's piled onto us. You constantly say that we can't hide our blackness. That's true. But we have other colors that are put onto that as well that we also can't hide. Not all of us, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I, whew, I just want to hug you right now because I can, I can only <laughs> I imagine what that journey was like. It's, yeah, it's resonating. I resonate with everything you just said. Yeah, Ooh, we gotta Thank protect you. each other. Absolutely. Um, so, okay, so I, I never mentioned the organization that I work for by name, but I've talked about <laughs> on The Healing Space a lot of times that I work in the mental health field um, with a lot of my kids that are homeless or just coming out of foster care or out of different institutions. And I would say that maybe 75% of them are within the LGBTQIA plus community. And one of the things that I think is interesting is um, I put down here in my question, here in ATL, it's shown me that even the Gen Z community has problems that we have, you know, our generation and our parents had as far as being able to unpack what we've been taught when it comes to our feelings about queer and trans people. And you would assume mm -hmm. when it comes to the, the Gen Z community that it would be more across the board. That it's like, no, we can't, that's ignorant. Why would anybody think that way? But you know, when, when it comes to being unplugged, it's not as easy as one would assume it is, especially when a person passes their trauma and their ignorance down to you, you know, um, when there, there isn't a separation of these things. So what have been some of the hardest moments for you when doing the work with Gen Z and maybe those who are older uh, via the Trevor Project and 1-800-273-TALK when it comes to unpacking and unplugging? Yeah, I think um, 
the hardest experiences usually are when I feel like my hands are tied. Like mm -hmm. even given all the expertise and the resources that I have, there are just some situations where like my influence is limited. Um, I can think of like two types of experiences working for the crisis lines. A, just hearing youth talk so badly about themselves and hearing their low self-worth and wanting so much more for them than they want for themselves and seeing so much more possibility for their life and their future than they can even fathom. And it's difficult in that moment to really open someone's eyes to all of the transformation they have left to make, like all of the beautiful moments that they have left to live when they're just so indoctrinated to believe that they're worthless, that um, they're sinful, that they were a mistake, that they should have never been born, you know, that even if they do all these things in life that are great and um, amazing, they're still going to go to hell anyway. You know, like they are repeating these things and like, wow, you have been taught to self-sabotage in so many ways. And I want to address that, but there's also the immediate challenge of like just bringing them down to baseline so that right that they don't hurt themselves in the moment so just those loaded moments where i realized like wow there are communities that i've been in that are very safe and affirming and um inclusive in ways that other people have yet to even fathom yeah you know it's just something they can't even imagine. And um, I would say the same for a lot of callers who live in rural places and more remote locations. Yeah. And they don't really have the same type of resources that somebody in like a New York or LA or Chicago or Houston would have. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just trying to really put myself in their shoes and, and relate to that degree of alienation that they experience, that degree of erasure and invisibility, it's jarring. It just reminds me of the privileges that I have that maybe I take for granted sometimes living in a major city. Some folks live in places where it's it's unheard of to have an LGBT center. Like people yeah, yeah, cannot yeah. imagine that. You know, there's no space, institutional spaces for queer folks. There are no out folks in churches or you know doing visible work or anything and so for them they would risk everything their job their reputation their social network to be out um and it's it's a lot different in than being in a city where you have so many more networks and safety nets to fall back on and so those moments are really hard realizing like, hmm, I have this list of like youth shelters, but they're all in urban areas and nobody in the, the LGBTQ advocacy spaces or the suicide prevention spaces is talking about like rural queer youth. And then like in the South, rural black queer youth, like not everybody is in, in Atlanta. Yeah. You know, there are folks who knows where, Georgia, Facts. trying to get to Atlanta, um, you know? So I'm also from a small town and originally, 
for the first 11 years of my life, I lived in a very small Tennessee town. And so that is like a frame of reference that I navigate the world with being from a place that is like very hyper-religious where there are no social outlets. There really aren't a lot of opportunities. Yeah. And so people cling to whatever gives them hope in the community and that's church. And it's whether, whether the pastor is leading them is enlightening them and like helping them grow emotionally and intellectually and spiritually, it's hit or miss. It just, it depends on who's in the community and who's given that platform and that pedestal to sort of separate everyone. And so I often think about those who are, again, on the outskirts. When we think about queer people, we often think about folks who are like living out and proud and they're in New York and whatever, but there's so many folks who have yet to make it to a safe space. Yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think about how to phrase this question because this is one of those questions that I didn't write down. It's just coming to me right now in the moment. Huh. How do I want to phrase this? When it comes, it, it's about you and your journey as far as as far as the church. Where mm-hmm. are you right now in your relationship mm. to the church, and what? for lack of a better term, what got you to this point? Mm, Yeah. So I am at a place where I have worked through a lot of my own trauma and my own grievances and frustrations with the church enough Mm -hmm. to see that it does offer a lot of benefits and a lot of um, supports for many Black communities. And I would never advocate for um, depriving Black folks of a space where they can feel whole and empowered and uplifted. So I'm not anti-church. I'm not anti-Black church, anti-Christ, anti-Christianity, anti-Bible. But I am, what I do stand for is inclusion. and I think I'm in a space where a lot of my a lot of my work around theology is trying to open Black folks' minds to what I guess I would phrase as liberation theology. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically the idea that, you know, spirituality can be used for good. It can be used in a generative way, in a way that brings folks together. And even if you're the type of person who is like, reading the scripture and going to go, you know, according to the scripture, you can look at Jesus's life and see traits of an activist, see traits of an iconoclast, someone who was very bold and going against authority and um, the corruption of people in power to try to make a more equitable society, to try to make a more fair society, to try to give people the resources they didn't have not because the resources were there, but because the people in power were so freaking greedy. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, we're still dealing with those same, like, those same evils today, yeah. those same injustices today. And so I try to help folks make the linkages. I think the saddest thing is that I feel like the Black church has just gone so far astray from the social impact that it once made in 
the 50s and the 60s and during the civil rights movement yeah because mlk was a minister and so many civil rights activists were ministers they were clergy and they were letting organizers you know strategize in their pews and in their sanctuaries and they were invoking parts of the the scripture that were very empowering and very revolutionary and so i sometimes think like how did we fall <laughs> like fall away from that line of thinking and be so complacent um with a mentality that really undermines our own our own independence our own agency our own self-worth yeah and it, it's frustrating still but i try to move through it and i try to remember that again we are in a society that doesn't teach us how to value ourselves doesn't teach us how to value black lives doesn't teach us about white supremacy doesn't teach us about patriarchy so you know a lot of these things are concepts and ideas people are learning late in life and for the first right. time and if i can reach them at whatever point i reach them at then that's better than nothing amen speak yes <laughs> that is very very important well said well said um as far as it goes with reaching people uh and the work mm -hmm. that you do this is not a question i get to ask often because i don't often unfortunately have people on the podcast that are queer and work in the field that we do. Mm -hmm. So if I can ask as a therapist, how do you mm -hmm. go about unpacking a lot of what's dumped on you from your clients? Mm. Yeah. Um, it's hard because you, you do get emotionally invested in people as you become more familiar with their story. You see, again, like when I was working the crisis line, a recurring thing was seeing um, so many strengths in people that they're not aware of yeah, yeah, and yeah. that they've been conditioned to filter out. And so I think I have to remind myself that people's journey is their own journey and I can't do that work for them. I can facilitate their development. I can facilitate their self-awareness, but I can't force them to have like this huge epiphany about their value yeah. before they're ready. You yeah, know, like yeah, we yeah. are on our own timeline and sometimes I want to rush it, but that's not the job of a therapist. The job of a therapist is actually to be more patient, but just to remind folks along the way of their strengths. And so, yeah, it does it does require me checking myself. Yeah. Oh yes, I um, <laughs> I had an instance with some yeah. of my youth where I was like, you know, I'm gonna step to them and I'm gonna tell these young men that they're black kings, and every time we see each other, we're gonna say that to each other. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> That, did, that didn't work the first time. Like the first time they laughed and I was all broken, you know, and I was oh. like, I, I just wanted to help no. them. But it was, it was a wake <laughs> up, you know, because like, like you said, it's, it's not about us and our, our ideas that we create in our head that we're going to take mm -hmm. to these people. It's about them and their journey and us being patient enough to be able to do the work with them, you know? So that, that was a very, very, I, I love that you said that because it spoke very much to who I was at that particular time and learning mm -hmm. that I needed to work with them day in and day out. Cause the whole idea was I wanted to bring them in and start there, but I was really happy mm -hmm. that I 
that was who I was when I first got to the organization instead of it being mm -hmm. me three years in with the organization because it was like yeah. okay now you know <laughs> yep. and you know as G.I. Joe says knowing is half the battle so <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so okay um do you have any advice for anyone within the lgbtqia community that des that decides they want to stay within the christian church how would you suggest they combat pulpit bullies mm, yeah um i would say first and foremost just to know that god does not hate you mm. um and to be more mindful of how religion and doctrine are weaponized and to see it more as like a mentality it's sort of like a, a a perspective or like a psychological lens on the world and um i think one of the things about experiencing it with my family is one of the biggest wake-up calls i had was when i started following a lot of survivors of religious trauma on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the folks, interestingly, I did not anticipate this at all, were like white, I think the term is ex-evangelicals. So like white folks who had escaped sort of like cultish Christian churches. Mm -hmm. And so much of what they had experienced resonated with me and I was, dumbfounded <laughs> I was like so this means something that I'm like a very 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 black very 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 queer person but here is this like straight white man who you know went to this church with this weird cultish pastor and like experienced the exact same thing yeah and I was like okay so this isn't necessarily about religion or spirituality this is like fundamentalism this is like a mentality where there are different traits mm -hmm. so i started noticing like the black and white thinking you know like the the spiritual bypassing and the learned helplessness and all yeah. of these sort of um these default mentalities that people are taught to rely on and i think that is helpful for queer people if you can view it that way like what is like the function of this? Why are people thinking in this way? Like what need is it serving? What end goal is it serving in their life? And I started realizing a lot of folks in my family um, believe the way that they do because that is the belief that really like carries them through a lot of trauma. They don't have access to a counselor. They don't have access to therapy. Yeah. So believing that, you know, there's some man in the sky <laughs> who is going to, you know, make their life better if only they're more pious and less sinful and like more pure. You know, there's lots of constructs that don't make sense to somebody who has all of the access and resources that I have. But when I place myself in their situation, it does make sense. Mm -hmm. So I think if queer people can sort of think like have a distance and I realize that's so hard when you grow up in an environment where people are like forcing things on you yeah, and ostracizing. Yeah, yeah. But like, if you can depersonalize a bit and just have like some distance and think, these people need to believe this, this in this manner for a specific reason. Yeah. And how is it contributing to their survival? And I think I learned a lot from that. Um, and it also just illuminates all the behaviors that 
pulpit bullies have in terms of silencing you and playing victim and victim blaming. And so you notice the patterns and then you are able to just like dismiss it and be like, oh, here we go again. Right. <laughs> here we go again. Like, okay, predictable. <laughs> so I got to that point too, where I was like, okay, so this is like one of 10 characteristics that I already have like seen time and time again. Foolishness. <laughs> yes, foolishness. Indeed, foolishness. <laughs> So, okay, speaking of that foolishness from the church, how how do they hold themselves accountable? What does accountability look like for the church? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think listening, listening to queer folks and really hearing our pain. There's a quote that I really like, and I know I'm going to get it wrong, of course, but it's... Um, it goes, people often say, stop being angry and educate me, not understanding that the education is in the anger. So this is just something I've encountered again and again in the church where people sort of have this mentality of toxic positivity. And I think it was, um, I don't know if you follow this psychologist, Dr. Thema, she's black, mm -hmm. but she tweeted one time, she was like, when people are trying to put out a fire, you don't tell them to watch their tone. Like you help them get some water. Right, <laughs> like, right. Go with the fire, <laughs> the house burns down, you know, like there's other priorities. So I think the church has to really prioritize healing Absolutely. and um, wanting queer people to thrive and I think realizing, to go back to an earlier point, that authenticity is really essential to being whole and being well, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Um, so that, that's one part of it. I think the other part is realizing the church doesn't have all the answers. And that's mm -hmm. okay. Like, that is okay. I always tell people, like, as a therapist, I don't have all the answers. Like I'm still learning from my own life, from stories that clients bring in, from like movies that I watch, books that I read. I'm still piecing together my own sort of like philosophy of life. Yeah. But no one has it together. No one Absolutely. has it together. No one has all the answers. No one understands everything. And I think sometimes a lot of clergy want to have this facade that they just like, are so anointed and they're like so prophetic that they just know everything. And I'm like, actually, first of all, that misleads people. But second of all, aren't you tired? Like, aren't you tired of being like you, you got it all together? Like, where do you go to like, just really like be vulnerable and just like yeah. be human? You're always in this pulpit uptight and acting like, you know, you don't have problems. And I know that you do. <laughs> so <just> let loose. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think that's part of it too. <laughs> I'm a I'm a therapist that like in session, I strategically use self-disclosure. So there are parts of my own story that I share with people when I feel it is absolutely necessary and it will yeah. benefit them not to make the session all about me. But I think the church could use a pointer um, from that, just about when people go to church, they oftentimes want to like, hear something that's relatable and like directly applicable to what they're going through. They don't want like a toxic positivity, inspiration quote from Instagram 
that oversimplifies all the BS they're dealing with. They want to know like that somebody else is like in the pits, yeah, <laughs> is yeah. like struggling and like be able to see themselves and other people's pain. And that is so validating. And I think that goes over the church's head because church folk can be so caught up on image and appearance and authority and authoritarianism. And I really wish we could just release ourselves from that stronghold, <laughs> those shackles. Yeah. Um, and that I think is directly related to also realizing queer people have some answers that yeah. folks that have titles in the church, whether it be deacon, bishop, whatever, you might have that title, but you don't know everything about what it means to be queer if you haven't yeah. You know, I'm talking to queer folks. So you have to humble yourself and be like, this is a lived experience I don't know anything about. And I'm going to put my listening ears on and really just hear you. And so I hope that the church can get there. I think I've experienced some really affirming experiences. So, like, I always talk about those experiences too. The first time I went to a church here in Houston, St. John's Church which is like a very social justice oriented church, very um, activist oriented church. The pastor immediately calls out everybody who got up and left when he started affirming queer people the, the Sunday before. Yeah. He's like, and y'all can leave again. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and I'm looking around like, oh my God. But he's like, yeah, like I meant every word I said, like I meant it. And you can get up and you can leave now because like, you know, we're not going to have a church where there's like this social hierarchy and we're replicating all these things out in the world. And that's a that's a problem. That's such a theme in the church. It's like we're not the world. We're not of the world. We're different. But it's like, no, y'all are very much the world. Yeah. Everything that's wrong with the world is right here. It's right here. <laughs> Say that. Say that. <laughs> Y'all just aren't conscious of it. And um, that blew my mind because that that Pastor Rudy Rasmus is like 60 years old. He has like this long beard with like beads. <laughs> the black man with the beaded beard. And he's so eccentric and quirky and open-minded and yeah, brilliant. And it just gave me a lot of hope. And it also made me think about the importance of just like telling counter narratives too. same yeah. thing when it comes to like we were talking earlier about queer childhoods we often hear about the doom and gloom and the trauma but you know the same thing is true for the church we need to hear about spaces that are super affirming that are super inclusive that are very revolutionary mm. and um i think that's helpful for us as queer folks but it's also helpful for straight folks in the church to see examples like, oh, so this is how we make this space more inclusive. This is how we bring other people in. This is how we engage young people. This is how we stay relevant. Um, so yeah, innovation requires us all to listen, humble ourselves, and really just accept that we're all trying to learn from each other and we all have something to teach. Absolutely, great answer. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay, uh, and finally, when, yeah. when it comes to healing practices for those who have made a decision that the church is no longer for them and they make a decision mm -hmm. to leave, 
uh, but they're experiencing a lot of sadness, a lot of anger, but still making a decision that they have a different path for their life. Are there any healing practices that you could share with those within the Misfit universe about kind of how to move forward in a positive way? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I can speak from my own experience. My healing work has required a lot of trying to embody what I want to see from people who like betrayed me, who disappointed me, who failed me. And what I really wanted from them was to humanize me and mm-hmm. to see me as a human being. Um, not as this like hypersexual queer sinner first, but like as the person who has lots of different layers. And so in thinking that way, I I had to reflect and, and really be honest. Sometimes like I'm not seeing their layers. <laughs> and that was really eye-opening. And I think the biggest takeaway is sometimes we have to learn how to hold multiple truths at the same time. Yeah. And that's been really critical to me healing that like, yes, it is, it is just justified for me to feel angry and self-righteous and um, indignant about some of the unfairness that I've experienced. But again, Black folks have been reared and socialized in a society where we don't know any better. And it's more productive for me to focus on solutions to correct that larger problem, that broader problem, that systemic problem, than it is trying to like avenge somebody that I don't like. Um, And I mean, within my own family, there were experiences where I have had to call certain people out after they just like repeatedly crossed the line. But that was after like multiple attempts at education and intervention. So I always just try to remember like, don't give up so easily on people um, before you really give them a chance. And I think that has really helped me find purpose. I think purpose is a healing practice and can just like reinvigorate you and help you not be thankful for what you've been through, but like really remind yourself that there is a lesson in it and there are things that you can share that can inspire other people who've been through it to help them so it's just not all in vain it's not all a waste um that's something and then just on a more practical level i think also not focusing on healing so much i think we focus so much on healing and i think intentionality is good Mm-hmm. But sometimes you also have to just have like moments of joy and like peace and like, you know, go outside and like experience nature and reconnect with your friends and like watch something funny and relax. Yeah. And so going back to like breath work and meditation and prayer and just relaxing and centering my body, that has helped release a lot of tension and trauma. Um, So, you know, a lot of it is like mental and thinking through things, but a lot of it is also like checking out from that and and being like, I don't have to always focus on the trauma to get through the trauma. Sometimes the answer is in like 
just focusing on the beauty of the world and people around me. So it's a balance. I don't have to always focus on the trauma to get through the trauma. Whoo! <laughs> <laughs> you've you you've had multiple quotables during this conversation. You've had multiple. <laughs> oh, and I think that's, that's important. Cool. Just no, I think that's important because we often conflate that with like repressing things or like avoiding things. That's not what I mean at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like definitely like be intentional about like you know confronting the trauma don't run from it because right. it'll come back you know you can escape things but never heal from them um so you want to make sure you're healing and not just escaping <laughs> but along the way live your life oh. and you know don't neglect your need for for growth and for inspiration and joy Whew, he made me put up the church hand. <laughs> you better speak. <laughs> Glory. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So I would. There's some stuff. There's some stuff. Yeah, listen. <laughs> we 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 have that in common. We absolutely do. That's, that's why I have to have you back on here again because there is so much more to unpack in several different uh, directions from this conversation. But if the misfits would like to be able to walk with you, that's what I call following walk with. If they would like to be mm -hmm. able to walk with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, um, you can reach me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. Um, my handles are just my name. So Araya Baker, A-R-A-Y-A-B-A-K-E-R. Um, yeah, and look out for any articles, videos that I might post. And yeah, I'm pretty active on most platforms. So yeah. And you can also shoot me an email too. I, my email is accessible on all those platforms as well. Like if you have a more personal question or something that you want to share or ask that you don't feel comfortable putting in the comments, feel free to reach out on a personal note. Indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, Araya, for joining us here in the Misfit Universe on the Healing Space. We definitely have to have you back on. <laughs> and Misfits, we will be right back with the couch. Black Gay Stuck at Home is so proud to partner with the Healing Space podcast for our bi-weekly screenings. So bring your drinks, bring your cocktails, but most importantly, make sure you RSVP at BGSAH.com. And remember, there's more than one way to heal. Okay, Miss Fitz, come on in and have a seat on the couch. So I know during my conversation <laughs> with Araya, I said, you know, I had him give out all of his information for you all to walk with him someplace else. But we had a conversation offline and I was like, I mean, this is the perfect opportunity to bring you in for the couch. Like, <laughs> it wouldn't make sense to have you on the episode and not have you on the couch with us. So, right. Misfits, as always, you know that we have uh, two questions that I pick. And once again, because we've been gone for a while, we have quite a few questions that you guys have emailed me. So... 
Already, I'm going to say my sincere apologies if I don't get to your question. We're kind of backed up, and I want to make sure that the people who are sending in questions now, that we can get those in. Uh, but if you would like to submit questions, as always, you can email us at love at revolutionmultimedia.com. That is love at R-A-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N multimedia.com. That's weird. Why did it just have a doorbell go? <laughs> so Araya and I have been having fun with Zoom today. <laughs> all of the all of the fun it's been uh, taking us through. It's been hilarious. Um, that doorbell was like, yes, I'm just reminding you that at any point in time, I can make it fun for you again. <laughs> okay. So we're going to go into the first question, which is okay. from Mark. And Mark says, I'm angry all the time. I've been angry since I was a kid. I do not know why, though. I do not know if something happened that I have blocked or what. All I know is I'm I am exhausted. I have not been able to keep a relationship for longer than a couple of months, and I am 26. I do not want to continue this way because I feel like I should be happy. What advice do you have for someone that don't want to trust anyone but wants to be loved? Mm. Wow, I feel like first... Thank you, Mark, for being vulnerable enough to share that. Absolutely. Um, I also think that's a very common problem that people run up against, like wanting to feel connected to other people, wanting like intimacy and closeness, but also feeling self-protective. Yeah. And um, to that, I would say be mindful of projection when interacting with people I think that helps mm -hmm. sometimes we can respond and react to people based on past things that they don't have any knowledge of yeah. and we project onto them in a way that makes us defensive yeah. and cast them as like this antagonizer when really they don't have anything to know they don't know anything about our past they don't have any reference point of our trauma so I think that comes up a lot of times in the relationship context, but overall, I would, I would recommend looking, looking at one's like self-worth, one's self-esteem and how that has been shaped by people. I think oftentimes when we feel as if we've been persistently made, persistently put down and made to feel small and belittled mm -hmm. that can create resentment that we just project out to everyone yeah. across the board. And it's unfair that people do that. And it's unfair that we internal internalize it, especially at a young age. But at some point we as adults have to take responsibility for healing that wounded self-worth so that it doesn't harm other people. Um, <clears throat> And the last point I'd make is that something that was a major epiphany for me was realizing that for men, anger is a huge symptom of depression yeah. and people often forget that. Yeah. And so a lot of times your anger, your anxiety, it can, your, your depression can manifest as anger and rage and um, aggression. 
yeah. that is really at its root about your dissatisfaction with other parts of your life or mm -hmm. your past. And so it's a lot deeper than just anger. Yeah. I think that's just a surface emotion, but always beneath anger, there is more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And th that's what I was going to say. You know, the unpacking of things is important. Mm -hmm. And I'm not necessarily sure, Mark, with where you are in your life, especially because you talk about trust. If there's anyone you believe you can trust to talk to, you know, um, mm -hmm. unfortunately, in the society that we live in, we can't just always throw out therapy because there's a possibility you can't afford it. You don't have benefits to be able to seek it, you know, things of that nature. So I would just say, you know, do research and see if you can find a way to be able to vent. You know, there may be groups out there. Uh, on the last episode of the podcast, I talked about uh, websites that you can go to to find peer groups that you would be able to use, you know, um, and maybe that could be a safe space for you. Uh, as far as your relationships with other people from a romantic point of view, I often say that I think people should work on compartmentalizing their anger, if nothing else, uh, because oftentimes the anger or the pain that we've been through in the past, we see that in the other people that we attempt to be in relationships with. Um, sometimes not even, you know, people we were in relationships with before. It could be family members. And because mm -hmm. we haven't figured out a way to heal from that, we're now taking it out on our partner. So yeah. I would just say if you can find ways to compartmentalize that anger, if you're angry at your dad, find ways to know that your partner isn't your father or vice versa. You know, if it's a sister or a woman, you know, just know that she has nothing to do with what took place in your past. I think that's one of the healthiest ways to move forward because with a lot of relationships, no matter, you know, who you are, uh, race, gender, all of that stuff, a lot of times people always bring their anger onto whoever it is that they're in a relationship with. And it's because mm -hmm. they've never learned how to be able to say, that wasn't you, you know? Mm -hmm. You are a totally different spirit and I need to treat you as such. Mm -hmm. And it's even worse when you're in a relationship and both of you are bringing that baggage, you know? And you're smothering each other because you haven't learned how to be able to, you know, say, okay, well, that's not you, that's not you, this is you and let's work with that, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Mark. Definitely. Did you have some more, Ariya? Um, I think to your point, I think mindfulness is important until you can get to a point where you're able to manage your anger and de-escalate yourself and self-regulate, mm -hmm. at least get to a point where you can just like realize that it's not the other person and yeah. that it's triggered because of something in the past. And yeah. then just be like, actually, can we circle back to this? Can we talk about this at a later time? I don't think that I'm thinking clearly yeah um or i don't want to say something that could be hurtful unintentionally yeah. but if we can remove ourselves oftentimes that in and of itself can salvage an, an interaction from going left if Absolutely. we can just get out even if we can't manage it in the moment, just get out get out yeah. and breathe and then come back when you feel like okay now i have some distance from whatever that comment was yeah so that's one tactic. And on the on the other side for, you know, for, for the other person, allow that person to get out, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah. I have been privy to quite a few. <laughs> I've seen yeah. situations in front of me and I've heard of, you know, different scenarios where a partner was angry because somebody wanted to leave, you know, just mm -hmm. to have an opportunity to get their thoughts together. And the person was angry and was like, no, we should be dealing with it right now. That's mm -hmm. that's definitely not healthy. <laughs>
<laughs> at all. Okay, so uh, the next misfit is David. And David says, I'm 31 and I came out to my brother about a year ago. He told me he always assumed I was gay and that he didn't care. But he said he doesn't know if I should tell our parents. You'd think my dad would be the one I fear telling the most, but my mom is the one that has made homophobic remarks here and there throughout the years. I don't feel like I should have to hide anything about myself anymore, but I don't want my family to hate me. Should I be happy that my brother knows and leave it alone? Should I tell my dad and not my mom? What would you do in this situation? Thanks in advance. Mm. Um, I wouldn't give advice without knowing more. Mm-hmm. I just don't know someone, anyone's family dynamic. So, um, yeah, that's more complicated than I I can respond to. But it would be interesting to talk more about what it is that makes your mom homophobic. Like, is she afraid of other people's opinions? Is she the one in the family who tries to uphold some image of the family and she feels mm-hmm. like that's gonna like tarnish it? Like, what is at the root of that? Yeah. Um, and oftentimes talking with young people when it comes to mothers, young queer people, when it comes to mothers who are homophobic, that is it is yeah. that mothers are invested in that image of like, we are the perfect family and like mm-hmm. I'm the arc upholding it and my kids are perfect and they're a reflection of me and these are my little trophies. And yeah. then you have a kid come along and you know, you have, I've heard queer, queer young adults say things like, well, at least I'm not doing this, or at least I'm not doing that. And they're naming these horrible things. And I'm like, why are you comparing your queerness to like all yeah. of these horrible life choices? Yeah. As if that's supposed to convince you, <laughs> whoever, your mother, your father, but that's often the route we go down. Like I could be doing this, I could be doing that. Like I have my life together, but I feel like the best thing is to A, think about <clears throat> the root of your mother's homophobia be like what you would get out of entering into that dialogue with her if anything what would yeah. it mean for you and what would her acceptance mean for you yeah because if her acceptance would necessarily mean more than whatever the dynamic is now it may not add anything to come out to her right right um, and she may already know, like she may already know and just ish, prefer not to talk about it and continuing to not talk about it is probably the best thing in that situation. But um, yeah, it's hard to say overall, but um, yeah, thinking the thinking about the motives behind people's opinions is, is pretty illuminating. It reveals a lot. Absolutely. Um, for, for me, when I was, uh, when I first read the question, in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, well, it, it appears as though he has a close relationship with his family, or so you would assume. But my thing is, you know, do you live in the same state? Uh, you know, do you live around the corner from them? Because my thing is, is that kind of to what you were saying, you know, it's like if there's a possibility that nothing positive may come from this, then if you're living your own independent life away from them, then how will it really impact you, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like, let's say that your family is in Connecticut and you live in San Diego. It's like, okay, well, your your brother knows. (laughs) So it's like, okay, 
somebody in the family that I know I can talk to knows, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and let's say maybe your brother still lives in Connecticut. He may have a, you know, a better gauge of exactly where your parents are right now. So if he's saying to you, maybe you should leave it alone, he may know that you should, you know. Um, mm -hmm. One of the, uh, I was going to use the word controversial, and I mean, I guess it is in a way um, from a queer perspective. But when we have the conversation about the parents and their lack of acceptance, one of the things that I've had conversations with um, with other queer people over the years is that it's it's a normal thing for us to kind of look at our parents and say, and I mean, this was me for a really long time too. Not my parents, but you know, in the scenario, like what are your reasonings for why you're homophobic? You know, it could be this reason, it could be that reason. And it took me a long time, you know, at almost 42 years old to realize that sometimes it really is just they're scared for you. That's mm. not always the situation, mm -hmm. you know, but mm -hmm. there are some parents that genuinely are scared. The unfortunate mm -hmm. situation, and I think what needs to be unpacked, is how when you are scared, you take it out in negative ways towards your child. Mm -hmm. It's not that you're scared and I want to protect you, so I'm going to show you love. Mm -hmm. I'm scared, so I feel like I'm going to berate you and make you feel mm -hmm. even smaller. And mm -hmm. we need to figure out why that is the next step. You know, mm -hmm. I'm scared, so I'm going to make you feel lesser than. Mm -hmm. How did we get here? You know? Yeah. So I'm not necessarily sure, as you were saying, you know, with us not knowing the history of your family, we're not necessarily sure what direction it goes in with what it is. Because this, this could be, well, I can't say this could be you assuming because you said she's made homophobic statements. But <laughs> yeah. I feel like at, at the very least, at some point in time, there should be a conversation, even if it's not you you know, as, as I say, um, um, Lord, I forgot my own phrase. What do I call it? Em emancipating your spirit? Something like that. I don't mm. say coming out. <laughs> Even mm. if it's not you deciding to do that, you know, mm -hmm. um, you could still find some way to bring up like, Mom, I noticed that, you know, once again, you've made this homophobic statement. Exactly where does that derive from? And see if that'll begin a conversation. You know, like Araya said, there's a possibility mm -hmm. she could know. So for all you know, if you were to broach that topic, she could, could end up saying, are you asking me that because you are? Who knows? But um, yeah. So any more, Orion? I mean, to that point, yeah, I wouldn't say that. I always say that coming out is not like the pinnacle of, of like queerness for me. I don't think that everyone should come out <laughs> i don't think it's safe for everybody to come out it really depends on your family dynamics yeah, like if, yeah, yeah. if you're living at home and you're dependent upon people that you know are homophobic wouldn't recommend it you know if it's yeah. gonna create an abusive situation um but also i think that's so coming out is so celebrated in our society it makes it seem like if you're not out then it, there's something wrong with you like yeah. you're hiding and you're not being authentic and you're not being real when really you're doing what you have to do to survive. So yeah. I would just say if, if, you know, compartmentalizing your part of your identity is what you have to do to get by at this stage in your life, that's just what you have to do. Absolutely. And the other thing is, um, I think a lot of times just sharing that we're queer feels in the moment very, um, it feels like emancipating in a way momentarily mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that things are going to change as quickly with the person Absolutely. that we hold Absolutely. and so we also have to remember that 
they're going to go through their own process. And I actually wrote an article on Psychology Today about this, about how parents have their own coming to terms journey about their kids coming out. And like you said, for some people, the fear manifests as let me be overprotective or just hypercritical Mm -mm. and try to discourage him from being out. But it can also go the other direction and be like, well, let me become an advocate. Like it's not anything wrong with him. It's not his fault. He didn't choose this, but this is the way society is. This is the way that the world views him. And I don't want to be complicit in that. And therefore I'm going to take a stand. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like there's a lot of research out there that shows that parents who do find um, uh, an avenue for advocacy and activism on behalf of their kids, they discover and tap into this like whole new universe of purpose where they're like wow I was like 65 and retired and thought that I was just like gonna sit at home but then you know Johnny came out and all of a sudden I'm at like gay (laughs) prides and like p-flag and all these meetings but it brings them so much joy to know that they're able to like bring light to someone else's life whether it be a, a person who just came out or another parent so yeah I mean there are lots of things to consider, but um, I think if you're really going to go down the route of coming out, manage your expectations and maybe even lead with some resources that yeah. you can share in the moment so that you're not just like surprised and blindsided when she's like, what? <laughs> or right. says something even more homophobic than she said before. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, definitely thank you to both Mark and David. We greatly appreciate it. Once again, uh, if you would like to be able to submit your own questions for the couch, you can do so at love at revolutionmultimedia.com. Or if you decide you're not the emailing type, (laughs) you can go onto the socials and you can type in THS podcast on Facebook and on uh, IG. So we'd like to thank Araya Baker once again. Thank you so much. And we will be back. Absolutely, absolutely. We will be back with good news. And now it is time for good news. And the good news is my birthday is in two days. Yes, a brother turns 42 on the 19th. And I'm really looking forward to my new year. I've been very honest with all of you about my 2021 being a full-on dumpster fire. It may be one of the lowest points of my adult life if I'm being completely transparent with all of you. But I know it's because what the universe has in store for me being 42 and 22 will be amazing. I'm also looking forward to all of you hearing the last episode of November entitled Healing Through Mood Disorders. It's one that is very close to home for me. So I hope that you all get something out of it as well. This episode will have us back on Tuesday, the one about mood disorders. But as it's going to be on the 23rd, which also happens to be the 15-year anniversary of my multimedia company, Revolution. So I'd like to once again thank Araya for joining us. I really enjoyed having him on the show and I look forward to when he joins us again. So until next time, my wonderful Misfit Universe. Be good to yourself and one another. I love you all. Namaste.